It's not uncommon, it's not unheard of for us, any of us, to struggle with a, a loss of, of our bearings, a loss of, of direction. Um, I heard some in, helpful uh, insight, got some helpful insight from uh, one counselor just this past week I was reading. He, he used this analogy when you just you feel like you've lost your bearings, don't know where to go, don't know how to proceed. He said, think of it like this, think of it as... Um, uh, nothing more complex than moving up a flight of stairs in a dark house. You don't need to just try and make it in one bounding leap, which of course will do nothing but get you hurt. Just take it one step, one step. Take one step in, in, in of, of what will feel uncertain at first, but just that one step and then that next step and then that next step as you're moving progressively further up that flight of steps to the point, you know, one at a time where you've actually gotten there. Um, another way to think about it, I mean, we as, as Christians are, are anything but um, immune to the same struggle of thinking specifically about what does it mean to, to serve you, Lord? What does it mean to follow you, Lord? What is it that you want me to be and to do? What, what, what direction should my life be taking? And we get our britches all bunched up about such things from time to time as well. And, and again, there's a, a similar analogy uh, that, that's worth considering here as well. And that would be, look, yes, I know you're concerned about this far-off horizon. But just for now, do the next thing. Take the next step of obedience and faithfulness that he's calling you to take in the here and now. Let him take care of about the horizon. It's way too far off for you to get uh, overly concerned about right now. To do the next thing. Attend to the basics. Attend to the basics. And the basics, by the way, we can be reminded and refreshed of what those are in some of the most surprising places in the Scriptures. It might seem counterintuitive at times. Where you find such teaching, where you find such grounding and regrounding. And I would make a case, and I'm going to be making a case over the next few minutes, you can find this in places such as First Kings, which is where we are, where we're going anyway. Um, so the beginning this study in the life of Elijah, and in weeks to come, the life of Elisha. First Kings, so if you've got your Bible, I'd ask you to turn now there now with me. First Kings 16, if you don't know where kings are, it's okay. It's, it's sandwiched in between 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. You have 1st and 2nd Kings. Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We are in 1st Kings, 1st Kings 16. That's where Elijah shows up, kind of like a bolt out of the blue. Um, in many respects. It's, it's just quite fascinating how he just appears on, on the scene in the midst of the action and the flow of the story. First Kings 16, starting in verse 29. And we're going to read on through chapter 17, verse 6. And uh, may the Lord teach us here in the, through this reading and this time of study uh, just what it means to get our bearings, what it means to walk in His ways, what it means to serve Him. 1 Kings chapter 16, starting in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Amri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Amri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. 
And it was, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In the days of Hael of Bethel, he, in his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation, its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerith, which is east of the Jordan. He shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Kerith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Let's pray together. Lord, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Lord, we could almost imagine Elijah praying these very words. And indeed, these very words really ought to be upon our own hearts in many respects. They're certainly the mark of what it means to have a heart that is beating in cadence with your own. And we pray that you would shape our hearts this morning as we begin the study in the lives of Elijah and Elisha and First and Second Kings. Oh, oh, make us to conform increasingly to the image of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I think a reasonable question to ask at the outset here is what sort of history is this? It's, it's, it's a good question to ask. It's a right question to ask. What sort of history is this? Let me say from the outset, it's true. It's true. These were real people, and these are real events that are being spoken of here. Uh, this is part of a genre of literature referred to as the Old Testament historical books. These are not these events, these, these chapters, 16, 17, and all, all the rest are not to be read and interpreted and understood as parables. This is history. That's one first thing that ought to be said. That said, it's not an exhaustive history. 
This is about a particular people. Particular times of their history. So it's not an exhaustive history. And, I don't, and I'm going to say this and it may trouble you when I say it, so I'm going to explain what I mean. It's not an unbiased history either. And by that what I mean is simply this, that the author's intent is not just to communicate a bare set of facts, but he has a purpose. He has an agenda. God has an agenda for us. And so does the author of First and Second Kings. And that is to convince us and persuade us and inflame our hearts in the reality of the one true living God, the hope of the Messiah, and the wonder of the gospel. So there's a bias. And it's a good one. So it's true, it's not exhaustive, it's not unbiased. Who's the original audience? That's worth thinking about as well. It has bearing as we think in terms of how to read this, how to understand uh, these, these, these uh, events and these records. Well, keeping in mind that this had to have been written, First and Second Kings had to have been written sometime after the middle point of the 6th century B.C. because that's when the events stop. So it has to have been written after that point to a people who are now on the other side of this horrific period that we know as the Babylonian exile. And they have questions. Lord, why? And, and they need to know why. They need to understand how they got to where they were. They need to be grounded in the faith. They need to understand that there, it was a, a good and powerful God who allowed for the destruction of His chosen city and His temple who allowed for and governed over this terrible period of the exile into Babylon. They needed to understand that that came about not because of his capriciousness and faithlessness to promises, but rather because of the gross, long-abiding sin of that people. They needed to know how it was that they had gotten to where they were. They needed to understand the past. They also needed to be grounded in the, in the hope of a future that was coming and the promises that still were laid out there for them. And they needed to come to grips with, so what do we do with all that in mind? What do we do now? Oh, Lord, how do we live now? Lord, where do we go from, from here? What does it mean to serve you? What does it mean to walk with you? And he's laying this out before them in this history, in this Record. Now, you may be wondering at this point, fine, but what connection does that have to us? It has a lot of connection to us because we are struggling with some of the very same things. We know, we've heard rumors at least, of a God who is there, but we're not sure where to go with that. We want to be certain. We want to be sure. We want to understand what does it mean to walk with you in such a strange and at times hostile world. And what does faithfulness look like? And what is walking in these promises and walking with Him in His ways? And what does it mean to serve Him? Well, He loves us so He's showing us. Through the lives of Elisha, Elijah, the history here, 1st, 2nd Kings, even this period of time. Here's the point. God has called, God has called us to serve Him. And that means walking with Him and in His ways. Very simple. He's called us to serve Him, and that entails walking with Him in, in His ways. And as we unpack that specifically here in this text, 
we see three things. Walking with Him in His ways, what it means to serve Him. It means understanding our context. It means understanding the message. And it means understanding where the strength comes from. What does all that look like? What is our context? What is our message? What is our strength? Where's all that coming from? Let's look at this together. Our context. Where are we? Where are we called to, to live and be and to serve? Let's I can go back now reading again verses 29 through 33. With that in mind, with that question in mind, what is our context? In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Amri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab the son of Amri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Amri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the king of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. What are we looking at here? We're looking at an, an unpacking of the context Ahab, excuse me, Elijah's context that tells us something about our own. What's, what's the religion of the day? If we look at here this period of time being described, what's, how would we describe the religion of the day? It begins with what the author of Kings puts before us here, this unholy alliance that takes place in this marriage between King Ahab and his queen Jezebel. Ahab, what do we know about Ahab? We know that, uh, well... He managed to outdo, which is a strange accomplishment, outdo all the evil and wickedness of all the kings of Israel who had preceded him. Ahab is, is, is a heart, has a heart that is callous, a conscience that is seared. And so there's this marriage takes place. It's really a, something of a political alliance that was arranged by his father, Amri, working things out with the king of Sidon, such that the, you bring these two together, Ahab, Jezebel. It strengthens the hands of both kingdoms. Who's Jezebel? Jezebel, we know. We're going to get to know her a lot better over the course of this series. Oh, she was a catch. Um, she's In many respects, she is... Either she was, it's hard to tell, was or at least aspired to be a priestess of Baal. Now, what, is, what are we talking about when we talk about Baal? Or you can pronounce it Baal. I'm going with Baal. Um, what are we talking about there? Just a quick overview. Over, Baal was believed to be the god of the storm. He was believed to be the one who sent the rains. And thence was, the, if you think about that, what that meant in an ancient Near East agrarian context, that means the God of fertility, the God of life, the God who's going to bring you your crops and provide for you. His weapons were said to be the thunder and the lightning. His symbol was said to be the bull. Now, for generations... The people of Israel, have, as they had settled there in the land of Canaan, and you can see this especially as you go back into Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel, it just keeps building on through the, the course of their history. There was this constant temptation and pull to either um, have the, 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 the worship and, and this Baal religion come either as an alternative to the worship of the one true living God, of, of the Lord, of Yahweh, 
or perhaps as an addition to, to supplement, as though that wasn't enough. We're going to bring the two together. It was a constant temptation through their history because, of course, they felt themselves to be so vulnerable. Again, this is an agrarian context. They need the land to be fertile. They need the rains. And they were willing at times to bow the knee to whatever God would give it to them. Now, how, that's the religion of the day. And as is the case with every religion of the day, it's going to bleed, it's going to be reflected in the culture of the times. Always is the case. And you see it here. In verse 34, In his days Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram his firstborn and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. Now you might think at first, this is this goofy, weird little aside about the building of this old, who cares, whatever city. But it's not that. What, what, what the author of Kings is showing us here is the religion of the day is reflected in the culture. That this, it's at least this much what's going on here with the, the, the deaths of these two boys. It's at the very least a fulfillment of ancient prophecy going back centuries before something that Joshua laid down and told the people after the conquest of Jericho, whoever in your history attempts to rebuild this city will do so at just this cost. The sons of their, the death of their firstborn and their youngest. Well, hello. What do you see here? But it's not, it's probably, it's likely not just that. It's quite likely that this gentleman by the name of Hael of Bethel, the deaths of his sons are likely, reading between the lines, due to child sacrifice. It's not that a, a, a rock fell on their heads. Rather, they were laid out on a rock and sacrificed to Baal. That was a prominent feature in the, the, the religions of the ancient Near East, especially there in Canaan, of sacrificing your children to the gods, that which was most precious to you. Give it up if you want what you want. Which is then a, a clue, an insight into the deep, horrific slide of Israel into the ditch of apostasy. Instead of keep pushing back against these pagan religions, they are embracing it. The religion of the day is coming out in the culture of the times. It always does. What we believe comes out in how we live. When I, let me give you an example. It's just a very personal and painful example. When I am unwilling to forgive, which I tell you is so much more frequent than it should be. But when I am unwilling to forgive, what does that tell you in that moment about what I believe? I don't believe in the grace of Jesus for me. And in that moment, I'm too proud. Right? Now, when I am willing to forgive, when I am willing to let the grudge go, when I am willing to die, to let that resentment die, and to forgive, I'm embracing the gospel. I'm believing the gospel. I'm taking it into my heart, but to the extent that I will not, it tells you what I believe. Now, take that to a cultural level. 
The religion of a day tells you about the culture of the times. What we believe as a culture tells us something. It comes out in how we live. Just think on the macro level here. How we vote. The policies we stand for. The celebrities we applaud and cheer on tells us something about what we believe as a people. And we need to listen to that. We need to pay attention to those things and listen to what it's telling us. Or bring it back down to the individual level. For any of us or just people that we know and, and love and care for. How we or they parent. Or what we read. Or our financial habits. Tell us something. And we need to listen. And we need to pay attention about what it's saying. Now, you may be thinking, what the? What does that have to do with context? What is it? It has everything to do with context. This tells us about where God has placed us. And so when we are hearing and when we are seeing what the religion of the day is and how it's coming out in the culture of the times, we need to understand that's not just where we landed, that's where we've been placed. It's where we've been, God has put us to serve. And to be faithful and to walk in his ways. It's not a time to get offended. It's a time to take that as insight. Insight into the people around us, and even ourselves. That we might be faithful. The second thing, we see here something of a message. The message in terms of faithfulness and walking with God. Verse 1, chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. What do we see here as, as, as Elijah is standing there in the court of the king proclaiming this message? What do we learn in terms of principles about the message we are to carry forth into this world? First, an affirmation of the truth of what is the beauty and the wonder of who God is and what he has revealed of himself. Just, just in the phraseology, it's bold statements that, that Elijah is making here. When he refers to the Lord, he's hearkening back to the covenant God and his covenant promises that Ahab has heard of but has spurned. When he makes reference to the God of Israel, and that phraseology comes up several times through here. Why? Because it's hearkening back to history, to events of things that God has done in space and time, in working with his people and initiating love with, and grace with his people. So the beauty and wonder of all that God has revealed of himself and the danger and destructiveness of all other messages, all other ways, as this God lives, Ahab, by the way, none others do. As this God lives, Ahab, and in essence, Elijah, and really the Lord himself, is throwing down the gauntlet right now in the court of the king. Your storm God, your God of fertility, drought. Three years. We'll see who's God. Pretty extraordinary. We'll get to that in just, just a second here. But uh, this affirmation of the truth and a commitment to the truth as well. Elijah is, recognizes he needs to say what needs to be said. 
And that cannot be governed by his preferences or even by his fears. I mean, think about it. Here's Elijah. He doesn't have an army backing him. He doesn't have some posse coming with him into the courtroom. It's just this guy. Elijah the Tishbite standing in the courtroom of the king who has an army, by the way. Saying these things, how could he... I mean, my goodness. How do you... How do you do that? Are you crazy? Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. Listen again to what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. You see, the message that he is proclaiming, he has embraced. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Now he understands. It's not like he's having this transcendental state and this out-of-body experience. Elijah knows before what king he stands. He's got it. But before even that, prior to even that, far more important and vital to even that, Elijah, Elijah knows who really he stands before. The Lord, the God of Israel. And so then he's able and cannot say otherwise. And so he has this message that comes out. He's affirming the truth and he's with a commitment to the truth. I mean, it reminds me in terms, some ways of what, in terms of our calling and how it trans, what we see here transferring over to us is what, you see it all the time in your courtroom dramas, right? That person is called up to the front of the room and there's the judge and there's this bailiff and, 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 and the person who's standing in what the Brits call the dock, and, and they're standing there or seated there, and there's, this question is then asked of them. Do you swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God? You're not going to take away from it. You're going to add to it. You're going to say what is. And what are they? They're a witness. Right? That's what Elijah is. That's what we're called to be. That's part of what it means to be faithful, to walk with God in His ways, to serve the Lord. Now, I'm not saying for a minute that any of us are going to be called upon to make an announcement, you know, go to Washington or to Nashville or whatever, and make an announcement regarding a drought. That, that's not going to happen. I'm no prophet, but I'm pretty sure that's not going to That said, we are given a message. We have been given a message, a message about a God who is, about man, about sin, and about a Savior, and it's good news, and it fits, and it frees. And we dare not add to it or take away from it. We dare not let our preferences or even our fears alter what that message must be and how it now, you may I know, I know, I know. But they'll tell me I'm arrogant. Yeah, they, they might, but, but not, maybe not. Not if you tell it, way, tell it the way it needs to be told. Speak it the way it needs to be spoken with a heart of compassion. Where you know yourself to be first the one who is in need of this grace before you speak it of a word of it to anybody else. Ours is not to enter into a, into a debate or an argument or a fight. Ours is but to be messengers de delivering this message that we have been given. 
and let him take care of what happens from there in terms of what we say and what we have to do. Be faithful. Take that next step up that dark flight of staircase or towards that horizon that we can't quite see. Trust him with the results. Which then takes me to the last point. Our strength. Our strength. How? Oh my goodness. How? How do we do this? Verses 2 through 6. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here. Turn eastward. Hide yourself by the brook of Corinth, which is the east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook. And I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. And they do. Oh my gracious. I mean, what does this tell us about the strength? Well, our strength begins as 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 with Elijah our strength be, our strength in God begins with our status in God again who is Elijah we don't know old testament commentators will tell you even what little bit we know here in verse 1 you know he's of Tishbe and Gilead anybody know what that means really and Old Testament scholars hardly know what that means either. And it's probably a point. He's got no credentials, really. He doesn't have any letters after his name. He doesn't have any pull. He doesn't have a, a pedigree. He's from a, a place in the, in the boondocks. You know why? Because his status is not in himself and what he brings to the table. His status is in God. His status is, that's his, the beginning point of his strength, knowing where he stands and who and why, and who has called him out and sent him forth. It begins there. He's a nobody made somebody, like us. Our, the status begins in him, that's part of the strength. The supply comes from him. And that's part of the strength. Elijah is sent east. Now the significance of that, sent on the other side of the Jordan, is that's outside of Ahab's territorial reach. That's beyond his jurisdiction. He's outside of Ahab's grasp. But not the Lord's. And so the Lord sends him out there under his care and just like he did centuries before, caring for his people in the wilderness, feeding them and caring for them by miraculous means, he does the same with this one faithful servant there in the wilderness. Through ravens. Through these birds of the wild. Which tells us again, the strength to serve the Lord is found in our status in the Lord and the strength of his supply. Now just take a step back again, thinking about the birds. These are, these are ravens. They're no different than any of our, the birds you will see in the, in the trees today. They don't have little halos on them. And Jesus clearly loves birds. I mean, you think, I mean, I, I don't want to be like weird here, but I think he was something of a bird watcher. You know, when you think of the number of his parables that speak in his teaching that tap into the Lord's ways with the birds. He knows when they fall and apparently they do his bidding. John, the late John Stott, wonderful scholar, one of his lesser known but sweet books is The Birds Are Teachers. Where, and Stott himself was a bird watcher, went all over the world taking pictures. Wherever he, he traveled, he always had his camera and binoculars with him. And he coined a phrase, 
ornotheology. What we learn about God through the, His creation, particularly the birds. Now, where am I going with this? I, it's, so, it's such a turnaround here. We're accustomed to hanging feeders in our yards, right? We feed the birds. Not always. Apparently there was one guy for three years plus where those roles got reversed, which tells us something anew and afresh, and I think is, was meant to impress upon Elijah and everyone since who's read this text where our supply really is to prepare him, to prepare us for whatever service is ahead, to know where the strength is, to know where the supply is. It's not in us. It's not going to be in our bankrupt, balsa wood, worm-eaten strength, wisdom, power, whatever. But it is found in Him, and it's found in Him in an abundance as we see bread and meat brought in the morning and in the evening. Wrapping this up, God has called us to serve Him. And that means walking with Him and in His ways. Now, this first audience... You know, whenever it was, probably again, mid-6th century or maybe the latter part of the 6th century B.C., would have recognized in Elijah the embodiment of walking with God in his faithfulness. But even so, and we'll see this as we move through this study, Elijah's no superman. He's prone to discouragement and even depression. All of which points to Jesus. I'm going to come right back to where we started this service. All of which points back to Christ. The extent to which Elijah was faithful and successful and obedient in what he was to be and to do, he points, as you might say, a foretaste of what Jesus was going to come and be and do. But the extent to which he failed and faltered in that points all the more for a greater, our need for a greater prophet, a greater Elijah who was going to come and live and die for us in ways that Elijah never could. And Elijah's life and ministry is meant to point towards, and as we think about that, how all the Old Testament, including Elijah's life, all the, all the people, all the events, all the ceremonies, all the rites, all of it points to Christ. That history, those centuries, preparatory, part of his purpose and plan, for us, his people, it ought to warm the ice of your heart and thaw it out and inflame a desire to walk with him in his ways and to follow him and him alone and putting aside all these lesser baals of our hearts. As we see how much, if I put it this way, how much trouble that he has gone to. This is not some slipshod, off-the-cuff, engagement proposal, oh, you know, I, I don't know, um, I was just kind of wondering, if you're not doing anything, would you marry me? This is far more in terms of the purpose and intentionality and passion. Uh, so, uh, something I came across just this past week, this guy named um, Matt, who hires a movie director to put together a movie trailer to be shown in a movie theater where his um, uh, girlfriend Jenny had gone with her brother to watch a movie. It's set up. She's sitting there with her brother in this theater. This trailer rolls that her boyfriend has worked out with the director to film of him asking her father for permission to marry her. 
him getting in his car, tearing off towards in the direction of the movie theater, jumping out of the car, running through there. Then he's making, it's kind of this little comedic-like moment. He's making his way through the lobby and can't get there fast enough. The people won't get out of his way. Then he stops to buy popcorn. And then just when the film on the screen, and understand, Jenny's watching all this and the seats unfold. Just when that ends, the door over here opens. And he comes tearing in and gets down on his knee and pops the question. And that's not all. He's laced the audience with friends and family members behind her in disguise that she didn't know were there, and they're all up and applauding. Now, this whole thing is called on film. This is not haphazard. This didn't just happen. You didn't just think of that, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning and say, hey, she's going to be in a movie at 1 o'clock. I think I can pull this off. No. And it's something like this with what we see here in God's purposefulness in, in all of history in taking us to Christ. Reflected even in what we see here with Elijah. Now again, I would say, as we understand that, as we're coming to see that, it will make us want to follow him all the more. We see how he has pursued us. We'll want to be pursued. We'll want to say yes. We'll want to follow him. Maybe even study more about Elijah. I don't know, maybe. Because in that we learn what it is to serve the Lord and to walk with Him in His ways. Let's pray. Lord, we don't graduate from this. We are in constant need of, of, of growing. We can touch these things but never fully grasp them. We are but children with so much more to learn. But more than that, worse than that, lesser than that, we are also rebels and, and need to have our hearts not just educated and trained, but changed. And uh, we're slow to walk, slow to follow you. And we ask that you would help us see the ways in which you have indeed pursued us. Help us to see indeed where you've placed us in terms of our context. What you intend for us. What the message is that you've put into our lips is one that you've put into our hearts. And where our strength is found in leaning into you, the good, strong, loving God that you are. Oh, would you bless this study and this series ahead and, and us as we move through this day and this week coming. In your name we pray. Amen.